Ephesians, Ephesians chapter number four. And if you're just joining with us, we've been going through the uh, book of Ephesians, and uh, we started in January, and we've been kind of going verse by verse, just seeing what uh, God has for us and how uh, the scriptures reveal to us who we are in Christ and who the church is, what the church is, our function within the church. And uh, we came here to Ephesians 4 a few weeks ago. And just to get us caught back up to speed again, um, I think it would be good for us to uh, take a look at uh, what God has to say. Um, uh, remember, he has uh, called us to unity, that we are to be uh, unified with the Lord, that um, in our unity, um, he calls us to walk in humility. So if we're going to have unity uh, with, the, with our other brothers and sisters in Christ, we're supposed to be walking in humility and love and tolerance. And uh, we're supposed to be pursuing after unity uh, in the bond of peace is what uh, uh, the scripture teaches us. And then he tells us our basis of unity. I mean, what is all of our unity based upon? Remember, it's those seven ones, one faith, one baptism, one Lord, uh, one God, um, one hope, one calling, all those things. And then um, God then tells us about uh, the grace that was given to each one of us, how that unity is supposed to work within the church, that grace was given to each one of us, and that also uh, he has given each one of us a gift or gifts. And we are supposed to be using uh, those gifts or that uh, those gifts for the purpose of unity uh, within the church. And so it's important to see those things as, as God brings us together, he's allowing us uh, to use our gifts for the purpose of edifying each other, serving one another. Remember, we're not supposed to be thinking of ourselves highly of ourselves. We're supposed to be serving one another, helping others. And so that's the whole purpose of unity uh, within the church and what uh, God calls us to do. And so it's important to see those things, especially within scripture about that. And we're going to look at a couple of verses here, uh, verses uh, uh, 7 through 10. Remember, I told you we we're going to break these up uh, in two parts because there's an important uh, doctrine I think needs to be dealt with is concerning why God has or Jesus has the authority to give us grace, why does he have the authority to give us gifts? Why does he have that? Why does he have that authority to do that? And uh, verses uh, 7 through 10 uh, give us that understanding of what that is. So let's take a look here at uh, what God's word has to say about this authority and why um, the Lord uh, tells us these things about this. Let's take a look what the scripture says here. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. It says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men in saying he ascended. What does it mean? but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, when we come upon these verses and explaining us to us why that God has given us grace and why he's given us these gifts, 
um, we see these verses here, especially particularly verses 8 through 10, and there's many people who have different opinions about what these verses actually mean. And I'm going to try my best here this morning to uh, give you some thoughts about uh, what I believe these things might be, looking at Scripture, comparing Scripture with Scripture. But I believe there is one basic understanding that we all can agree upon. And that one basic understanding that I want you to leave here with today is that Jesus Christ resurrected from the grave and has all power and authority to give grace and gifts. Now, the mechanics of that, of, of how all this happened, uh, there's different opinions, but one thing that I think we can agree on is that Jesus Christ resurrected from the grave and he has all authority and power to give us grace and the gifts. And in his resurrection, we are victorious in Christ. So let's take a look here, uh, a couple things here about this text in particular. And uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of material that I went through looking at, studying. And uh, I'm not going to give you all of that here this morning. And if you want it to study on your own, I'd be more than happy to, to pass that along to you. Uh, but let's look at the first thing. Number one, we have victory because of his ascension. Look what verse number eight says again. It says, therefore it says... When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, as we looked at last week, that Jesus gave us this grace and he gives us gifts, what do we base that on? Well, we base that according to what Paul says here, because of his ascension, because Jesus resurrected from the grave. And it's because of that victory that Christ accomplished in rising from the dead that he's able to give us grace and he's able to give us gifts. Now, the ascension of Jesus is very important it's very, very important to the church. Uh, take a look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 through uh, 23. Look what Paul says here about the ascension of Christ. Uh, he says this, and he put all things, this is talking about uh, when he was uh, ascended in verse number 20. He says he seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above rule and authority, verse 22. And he put all things under his feet... And gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so Paul is writing about Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And Paul's saying it's so important because now he has authority and power over all things because of his ascension. And so it was through this ascension that Jesus has this authority and the ability to give us grace and to give us gifts. Uh, look at the text here again in verse number 8. Uh, look what he says here. It says, therefore it says. Now I want to give you a, a good helpful tool when you're studying the Bible. Anytime you see a New Testament writer uh, starts to say, therefore it says, or there it says, or uh, however it says, it's got quotation marks. That's giving us a key that's going to unlock the rest of the passage. And here he is quoting from an Old Testament source. And we find here this, uh, this uh, what he's quoting from is from Psalm 68, verse number 18. I have it here up on the screen. It says, the chariots of God are twice 10,000. 
thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious that the Lord God may dwell there. And so Paul here, he's quoting from Psalm 68, and he's applying Psalm 68 specifically to Christ. I believe Psalm 68 is a uh, psalm about Christ, about the victory that he's given us. And Paul is using that to give us an understanding of what Christ's ascension means. Now, let's flip over to Psalm 68. We'll come back over here to Ephesians here. But I want to show you in Psalm 68... There seems to be uh, this great victory. There seems to be this uh, uh, language that is given to us in Psalm 68 that shows us that Christ is the victor, that he has all power, he has all authority. Now, when David here, he's writing in this psalm, he's telling us that God is the one that is to be praised. He's the one that we're supposed to be praising and, and giving him the, the, uh, the victory to. And he is praising him because of his past acts that he has done in taking care of God's people and all the things that God has done in the past. And there's victory language throughout all this whole entire psalm. I encourage you to read it on your own sometime. But let's just highlight a couple uh, verses here that I'll show you this victory language. Look at verse number one. It says, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered. That's victory. God's, God's going to scatter all of his enemies. Look at uh, verse number three. It says that the righteous shall be glad. They shall exalt before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Look at verse number 12. It says the kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. Look at verse number 14. It says that the almighty scatters the kings. Look at verse 17. He says the chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. And the Lord is among them. Look what he says in verse 21. He says, but God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. Look at verse 34. Ascribe power to God whose majesty is over Israel, whose power is in the skies. And so there's this great victory that David is talking about that God has accomplished. There was a custom back in the old days, in the ancient times of war, and uh, when, when two kingdoms would go to war, that when one kingdom would defeat the other kingdom, what the, uh, what the people would do is they would go there and they would take captive the generals and the king and the prince and all the, all the mighty men of war, they, they'd capture them, and they would take them and lead them through the city, Showing that, hey, look, we conquered you. We conquered you. And then they would take all the spoils of war, all the gold and silver. They'd take it all and they would heap it on and they would give it to gifts. They would give it out to all the other people uh, of the other kingdom there. And so this psalm gives us this idea that there's a great victory that has taken place and God has accomplished, he has captured, he has won over the other enemy, and he's taking all the spoils of war, and he's showing that he has all authority and power. And Paul uses this psalm to apply directly 
to what Christ did when Christ ascended to the Father, when he resurrected from the grave. So the message here in verse 18 is the person of the victorious king, is what uh, uh, Psalm 68 tells us. And God has ascended in triumph over his enemies. He's captured. He's taken command. He's, all, he's in all authority and power. And Paul takes this verse of, about this uh, victorious Israelite king, and he, he applies it directly to what Christ did on the cross and that he resurrected from the grave. I want you to note several things about this psalm. First of all, in Psalm 68, verse 18, its context obviously is referring to the Lord ascending, and Paul applies it directly to Christ. So this is seen very clearly as you read through verses 17 and 18. Look at it again. It says, the chariots of God, Psalm 68, verse 17 and 18, the chariots of God are twice, 10,000, thousands upon thousands, The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. And so this is a poetic picture of that the Lord's people were in trouble and the Lord came down and delivered them. And then he ascended again into heaven as the victorious warrior. And so Paul applies this directly to what Christ accomplished for us in rising from the dead. Secondly, this imagery here is used to teach a very great spiritual truth. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, he did it as a great conqueror. I am so sick of this mindset, of this, of this Jesus that, oh, poor Jesus, he's so, he's so helpless, poor Jesus. And he's this weak, emaciated Jesus. He is a great conqueror, the Bible says. And he's victorious. And he rules and he reigns forever. He defeated his enemies. Scripture tells us. He defeated Satan in Colossians 2.15. It says, disarming the rulers and authorities, he has made a public disgrace of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He defeated sin, the Bible tells us. Colossians 2.14, he has destroyed what was against us, a certificate of indebtedness expressed in decrees opposed to us. He has taken it away by nailing it to his cross. And he defeated death and hell. Revelation 1.17 and 18 tells us, when I saw him, I fell down at his feet as though I were dead. But he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. And the one who lives. I was dead, but look, now I am alive. And forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and of hell. 
That's our great conqueror. That's Jesus. That's the victorious king who has conquered all of the enemies. And he's led them through. He took hold of them and arrested them. And we have victory in Christ because of his ascension. Third of all, after his ascension, Jesus gave gifts to his church. Here in Psalm 68, it's giving us this picture of the, of the captives there. And they're being led in, in throughout the city. And they're, they've received all of this uh, spoils of war and they're giving them away. Now here in, Psalm, in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, look what he says in verse 8. It says, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. But look at, Ephesians, uh, look at uh, Psalm 68, verse 18. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men. One says you gave gifts. The other one says you received gifts. Is that a contradiction in God's word? No, it's not. One implies the other. Let me give you a good verse that I think could really help us sum this up. Acts chapter 2, verse 33. So then, speaking of Jesus' resurrection and his exaltation, it says, So then, exalted to the right hand of God, and having received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father, he has poured out what you both see and hear. You see, the one statement about one receiving gifts and the one giving gifts implies the other. Meaning the fact that when Jesus, because of his accomplished work on the cross, because of his resurrection from the grave, his father gives him, gave him those gifts to be able to distribute to you and to me because of what Jesus did. And we are victorious. And this is what's so amazing about this. Christ has given us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what empowers the church to do what God wants us to do. And so we are victorious in Christ because of his ascension. Let's look at one last thing here. We have victory because he descended. Now here's where things get a little complicated Look what it says in verse 9. It says, In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Paul here is comparing ascending with descending. Now, is Paul talking about Jesus' descent into the earth or to the earth? When somebody dies, uh, there is a thing, it's separation. That's what death is, it's separation. Uh, when you have a funeral, you'll, you'll have a body that's laying there in a casket, and it's separation. When you die, there is separation. There's separation from your physical body, and you have a spirit. That's the way God created us. Now, that spirit goes somewhere. The Bible tells us those that know Christ, the Bible says to be absent from the body, to be separated from the body, is to be present with the Lord. But those that do not know Christ, 
Bible tells us that they go to a specific place, and that place is called hell. So the question is, when Jesus descended, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about his descent to the earth in his incarnation that Jesus became a man? Or are we talking about Jesus' descent into the earth? One of the prevailing questions that sometimes often comes up is, did Jesus go to hell? Meaning the fact, did he go to the place where there is uh, torment and there's fire and there's unquenchable thirst? Did he go to hell in order to pay for our sins, in order to secure grace for us? My answer to that is no, he did not. You say, well, how can you be sure? Well, listen to what John chapter 19, verse 28 through 30 says. After this, when Jesus was on the cross, knowing that all things were now accomplished, here's Christ on the cross. He is suffering the wrath of God. The Bible tells us he became sin for us who knew no sin. After all things were now accomplished that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a hyssop and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Jesus accomplished everything on the cross. So what is Paul talking about here? that he descended into the lower regions, the earth. Matthew chapter 12, verse number 40, Jesus said this, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So if it wasn't the place of torment then where Jesus was, Where did Jesus spend three days and three nights? Where was Jesus' spirit? Where did it go? Where was it? In God's word, there are three words that define hell for us or define the word hell for us. One can mean the place of torment as we know where people go without Christ. Another word is one that can simply mean the grave or the place of departed spirits. And the other one can mean the lake of fire. He uses that word Gehenna. The lake of fire is where the, uh, those that do not know Christ, the future coming judgment will be cast into the lake of fire. Jesus used it as a continual burning garbage dump uh, in his day. Let's turn over to the book of Acts chapter 2. Next chapter number two. Acts chapter number two. Look at verse twenty two. What he says here, Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Peter is giving a sermon about Jesus Christ, about his, his death on the cross and his resurrection. 
And in verse 22, he picks this up. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Thank God for that. He's victorious. And then in verse 25 to verse 28, Peter's going to start quoting to us out of Psalms 16, specifically verses 8 through 11. He says, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he, he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon, notice this, for you will not abandon my soul to where? Hades, hell. Or let your Holy One see corruption. Verse 28, you have made known to me the path of life. You make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God has sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to where? Hades. Nor did his flesh see corruption. So where did Jesus' spirit go? Where did it go? This is one of these things that people have argued about. They wrote books about, papers about, went back and forth about. The important thing that we must understand is that Jesus Christ resurrected from the grave and he has given us victory. He's given us power. He has all authority and power to give us grace and to give us gifts. I want to show you one last text here. Turn over to Matthew chapter 27 because this is, this is really cool. I love this. Matthew chapter 27. Here's Jesus died on the cross. Look with me in uh, verse 50. Matthew chapter 27, verse number 50. Bible tells us in Jesus, here he's on the cross, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook. There was a great seismus that happened, a great earthquake, a great eruption of land. The earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Now, notice this, comma. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection. 
Here's people that have are what we call would be like in Abraham's bosom. Jesus, after he dies, the tombs are opened. But after he resurrects, those people come up out of the grave. And I like this. It says they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Hey, is that? No, I can't. no way. We be, no, no, I know we buried you a long time ago. What an amazing thing that must have been to see that, to behold that. Let's turn back over to Ephesians chapter uh, number four. I want to show you one last verse here. Look what he says in verse 10. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. The idea here is Paul is talking about that Jesus descended so that he could ascend. Now me, I personally believe here that this is also a, goes correlates with Philippians chapter number two. Talking how about Jesus left heaven he humbled himself. He took upon him the form of a what? Servant. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And it says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. So Paul here is telling that Jesus laid aside his glory in Philippians chapter number 2. And he became a servant. He humbled himself. Now it's interesting that these verses would be right in line with Ephesians chapter number 4. Because remember what Paul is calling us to? Unity. And what did he say the very first thing? If we are going to have unity, what is the very first thing that he said must be in our lives? Humility. You must humble yourself. And I believe Paul is using here, talking about how Jesus came, he descended, and he became a man. He took upon flesh. And so Jesus is filling all in all. You say, well, that's great, Mike. That's great. Jesus ascended. Jesus descended. I have victory in Christ. What does that mean for me? What does that mean for me? How does this work within the, the context of the local church? This is one thing that I want to leave with you. Two questions. Well, just one. Am I living in submission to Christ, to his authority? If Jesus has all authority by proving that he resurrected from the grave and he's given me grace and he's given me gifts, am I living in submission to Christ? Am I obedient to him, to his rule and reign in my life? Am I seeking to know him and his will through his word so that I can obey him? You see, if you are not living in submission to Christ, you are being disobedient. We must live in submission to him because he has all authority. He proved that he had all authority by resurrecting from the grave. If we are gonna have unity within the church, 
we must all be submitting to Christ. We must lay down our wants, our desires, and submit to Him. Let's pray together. Thank you.